0: Unlike
1: me.
0: Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I ask various guests to reveal the five things from their life they treasure so much that they would like to preserve them in a time capsule. Well, in fact, four things they cherish, and one that they regret and would like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the actor Shane Ritchie who is best known for his portrayal of Alfie Moon in EastEnders but his career has leapt all over the place starting out as a blue coat at Pontins Holiday Camp on the Isle of Wight he's been a stalwart of the panto world hosted a number of primetime quiz shows like Win, Lose or Draw and Lucky Numbers starred in the West End in shows like Everybody's Talking About Jamie, Boogie Nights and Grease hosted The One Show had a number two hit with the Children in Need single I'm Your Man, a cover of the song by Wham, released a country album, and played a rat in the animated movie Flushed Away. He's also appeared in loads of TV shows, such as Benidorm, Night and Day, Minder, Skins, and most recently as part of the 20th series of I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here. Shane spoke to me on Zoom during lockdown, and if anyone can lift your mood, it is, as you're about to find out, Shane Ritchie. I hope you enjoy it. Shane,
3: what's your first item? Oh, Michael, my first item. I mean, those that have known me uh, a long time will know my love for old um, vintage TV film memorabilia toys. And the reason why I kind of went over the top collecting um, toys, certainly in the last 20 years, is a, a memory that was haunt me for years and it was the first time uh, growing up in a women's refuge um, there was a lot of children and my mum and my dad was occasionally was there and sometimes he was and would go missing but my dad used to run a lot of clubs in London so my introduction to working men's clubs was at the age of eight collecting um, glasses and getting up and calling bingo and doing the raffle and my dad like, used to run a thing called the loan club <laughs> which was basically little illegal uh, lending of money but anyway and <laughs> I remember Planet of the Apes. It's strange when I mention this, it pricks people's conscience about uh, TV-related toys. And, you know, like Star Wars toys that were some of the biggest collecting items in the world now. Yeah. But the very first ones were Planet of the Apes. And when the TV series came out, I remember we had a television that we share in the house and there was a lot of women that would come and stay for three or four days. So my mum would put them up, we had this big house that we lived in and children would come and go. But we had a big television that was kind of given to us by the council. And one of the first TV shows I saw was Planet Ramps. And one of these kids turned up at this big house with one of the figures, which I'm holding. I'm going to hold in my hand right now. <laughs> it's this guy here. Oh, yeah. This is Galen from Planet Ramps. And I remember watching the TV show and seeing that this kid had this in his hand. And I said, could I play with it? And I played with it all day, every day. And I was only young. But then I was given an action man. And I was like, oh, this is fantastic. Because I knew lots of other children, an action man. And, and, and it just bonded me with other children. And then my brother broke him. He took his bloody leg off. <laughs> and my mum said to me, don't worry. When you're older, you can buy as many toys as you want. And I remember making my first big paycheck. This was like in the, must have been in the 90s, where <laughs> I made a lot of money. And this is way before eBay, way before going online. I ended up going to toy fairs and buying everything. Like, I bought everything that was related to Planet of the Apes. And I don't know why. I, you know I've since sat down with psychiatrists over the years and you know when I went through divorce or you know my drink problems and I think it was just my way of sticking two fingers up and going yeah my mum was right I can buy everything now and kids that lived in the area would show off their toys and there's a part of me now that buys these toys and friends of mine that come around the house and it's become like a bit of a museum. And so one of my earliest memories, uh, and uh, looking at my toys now, and of course it's since gone on to Jerry Anderson and Marvel. So I surround myself, and and the colours, the look, and they remind me of, of, of a happy childhood. I mean, I had a great time. You know, we couldn't afford to buy a skateboard, so uh, I built one. Um, everyone at the time got a chopper bike. I remember building my own chopper bike. And funny enough, only about two years ago, I bought a chopper bike, which is, on my wall in my garage. And I, I look at the chopper bike and I go, oh my God, I finally got one. I never had one when I was 10 or 11. So things like that, uh, you know, they remind me of a happy time. Albeit, I got them through anger. When I think about I was angry that I couldn't have them as a child. Uh, you know, and I never put pressure on my mum to get them. But she always said, don't worry, when you're old enough, if you can afford it, you go and buy yourself some.
0: And I did. Do you think you fell in love with them because, you know, it, this was a safe thing or this was a, a, an escape thing? So when you were in that refuge, this comes on the telly and you go, yeah, this is another world, another planet.
3: Yeah, and, it, and if you saw the adverts, like same with Action Man, even now you you watch, you know, toy adverts, they're children playing with toys, which said to me, why have them children got them toys and I haven't? Why? Why can they afford them and I can't? Yeah. I never felt like. I, I was, did I feel like I was missing out? Yeah, but I never, I was never bitter about it because I always knew, oh, one day I'll have that. It's, for me, it's always, you know, oh, one day. Don't worry, I'll have that one day. And, and I, th- I think I spent my whole career going, you know, whether I would like musical theatre, the amount of times I went for auditions, oh, one day I'll get to do that. Or, you know, as a job in actor, oh, one day I'll get that job. Uh, and of course it came, you know, the big job was Alfie Moon. I suppose the, the toys were the same. It was like I, I was never in a rush to get them, but when I knew I'd get them, I would. And now they're so easy to get hold of. You know, with the uh, with internet, I could just tap one button and go, oh, okay, how much is that one? Eh, maybe I'll barter for it. But I still, even now to this <laughs> day, I still when I'm on, when I'm in on tour, I'll find out the city or the town I'm in and find out if they've got old vintage toy shops, I go to antique toy stores and I become friends with all these people around the country and even some in the States now I keep in touch with. And yeah. we buy, swap and sell. And, I, I, you know, I've still gone there. And, and something might only cost £15 or $20. And I go, oh, let me barter for that. But the big... <laughs> how about this, though? This is the go worst on. thing I ever done. <laughs> so I went... This may be something I might... May never want to see again. But as I'm sitting talking to you now, Mark, I'm in my office looking at it right now. So I went through a divorce. And I was on my own for a while. For about 18 months, I was on my own. And I lived in this big, big house that I couldn't afford to keep up. So I ended up bringing in mates of mine, that, musicians, of all people. Anyway, my, a couple of mates who'd been on tour with Robbie, uh, Wet Wet Wet, Elton John, they all come and stay. For some reason at my house become a sanctuary, it was known as The Manor. I had eight bedrooms, it was on 10 acres of land. Like I said, couldn't afford it. But my ego got the better of me and I bought it when I did the soap powder ad, which I will talk about later. Anyway. <laughs> And I was heavily drinking. I was going through divorce, all all my own doing. I don't blame anybody except myself. And for some reason, I saw the Planet of the Apes wagon. The actual wagon they used in the 1968 film, where they throw Charlton Heston into it, was for sale. Mike, I couldn't believe it. I just went, oh my God, the wagon. Now, bearing in mind, I'm going through a divorce, I've got very little money. So I thought, can I afford to get this? Can I? So I start bidding for this wagon, which is in Southern California, outside the front of someone's house. They've got all the legit papers. I know it's the actual wagon. They threw Charlton Heston. Now, what what better toy to have? Never mind the six-inch figures. This is the actual bloody wagon they threw Charlton Heston into. So I'm getting on the Jack Daniels. Um, this This is over a weekend. I'm sitting there. I'm not going to sleep. I might be using other substances. I don't know. I can't remember. But anyway, I'm staying awake and I'm now bartering. I'm going, how much starts off at three grand? Oh, I'll go 3,200. Oh, someone's gone fourth. Oh, there's someone in Australia wants it. No, forget that. Anyway, cut a long story short. I eventually get it for 8,000 pounds. Now this is in 1999, I think it was, or 2000. Wow. So now, forget it. Now I've got to get it across America, ship it to the UK so my mate who's staying with me who's in Elton John's band and he goes I think Elton might be to- <laughs> <laughs> I think Elton might be help. To- I said what do you mean Elton might be he said well he's got this company called Rocket and it was, that was his I think that was his record company it's a freight company he's got everything's called Rocket that was Elton John's so he gets in touch with someone through Elton John's company and they say oh yeah we can get it with Rocket Freight We need to drive it across America from California, I think to North Carolina, ship it to Felixstowe, Felixstowe to my house. How much is that going to cost me? 12 grand. (laughs) In the end, I pay 20K. This is how pathetic and drunk and stupid and naive and my ego got the better of me. I shipped over this Planet of the Apes wagon from Southern California to Denham in Bucks costing me 20 grand the thing is now in my front garden it just looks like an old skip now because obviously i couldn't put it in the house so there's me thinking i was going to put it on this big marble plinth it was going to be for the whole world to see it's now rotten in my front garden it stinks of fox crap (laughs) so that one thing i'll probably just want to bury forever that when i look at that that reminds me of a bad time i went through emotionally personally professionally I look at it. But then it, it, when I do look at it, it reminds me of what an idiot old dickhead I was back in the day. So I'm constantly reminded because in my front garden. I'm looking at it right now as we speak. Yeah, thanks for that, <laughs>
1: Charlton
3: <Espen. laughs>
0: I think for 20 grand, you could have bought Charlton Espen.
3: <laughs> he could have come over and stayed with me, along with a load of out work musicians. Oh,
0: <laughs> mate. Oh. All right, so that's two items you've managed okay. to get. Yeah. yeah, you've got Galen, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, Galen. Yeah, the little figures. Uh, yeah, was that Roddy McDowell's? Yeah,
3: character? Roddy McDowell. He, made, um, um, uh, he did, the, the, obviously, the movies, and then he did the TV series, which I think they only recorded 10 or 12 episodes. And like anything, you know, TV was changing back in the mid-70s, certainly in America. Um, funny enough, Eric Green, who's a, a writer, wrote a wonderful book about the ceases of Planet of the Apes. And when Pierre Bourque, uh, who wrote the original piece, The Planet of the Song, he, he wrote Bridge Over the River Quiet. And he wrote it, uh, I think it was in a, he, he actually served in the, in the French military. He was a, uh, and then helped build the bridge. I think he was a um, prisoner of war out there. And when he wrote uh, Planet of the Songs, he actually wrote it about racism. And if you look at old, if any of you, people listening to this, if you go, I think you can actually see them online. There's old black and white stills of the making of the movie. Uh, and when they used to break for lunch break, Charlton Heston would go and sit with some of the actors who were not apes. And you'd find all the apes, the gorillas that were in prosthetics, all sat together. The chimps sat together. The orangutans sat together. And the humans sat together. And it's an incredible black and white print that I've got. And it just shows where yeah. you will go and sit because you feel comfortable. Yeah. And these prosthetics bore out, almost like the worst thing, people, that, that inept racism that, uh, certainly back in the 60s in uh, middle America, that was happening mm. when they were making that movie. And when Pierre Ball wrote the book, that's what he was writing about.
0: Yeah. I heard that um, the same thing happened in the making of the Cold It series. The prisoners would never have lunch with the German guards. And they were all actors. All actors all knew each other. All spoke. You know, most of the German guards were putting on an accent. So at lunch they would speak with an English accent. They never sat. With
3: you had them. that uniform, isn't it funny? And that's that, that's why we judge a book by its cover.
0: Yeah, we really do. Whether we like
3: it or not, sometimes we don't know we're doing it. Yet we do. No.
0: Yeah, it's really clear, isn't it? I think in the in the recent films of uh, Planet of the Apes, that was an element that was quite clear, I think, that racism. They brought that back, didn't they? Of course
3: it was, yeah, with the the apes, the hierarchy with the orangutans, then you had the workers uh, being the gorillas, and then you had the chimpanzees being almost like -like, um, student-like, and, you know, quite liberal in their thinking, and then you had the humans, which were the animals. Mm. Uh, You know, I grew up in uh, and uh, where I went to school. Uh, I didn't realise at the time, but there was 33 in my class, three of us were white. And it wasn't until it was pointed out to me by John Craven's Newsround about prejudice amongst, God. and I never noticed it. You know, I, I never. My first girlfriend was a, a black girl called Lorraine, and it was only pointed out by my dad, who was quite racist. He was a typical cliche paddy or a working men's club, and I had no idea.
0: Kids don't notice it unless you tell them exactly. So you were. There were three. White boys in your class. Yeah,
3: me, Jason and Diane. Uh, the rest were made up of uh, Pakistani, Indian and second generation, first generation uh, Caribbean. Af- you know, I'm, my music, the music for me was reggae. And then when Two Tone came in, my God, is you know, that music being sung by white people? I was listening to this music in the mid-70s. You know, Trojan and reggae, and all of a sudden these white boys are singing reggae music. And when I first heard the specials and Madness and bands like The Beat, I was going, and UB40, I was going, yeah, well, why am I getting so excited about this? In Holston, I was listening to this all the time. Um, yeah, no, interesting times, really interesting.
0: Yeah. So we're going to put Galen, and we're going to put your ridiculous wagon. That's going into the time capsule. One to remind you of the folly of uh, Weekends on the Jack Daniels. Yeah, and and, w- and one to remind you of uh, of a happy childhood. So, what's your next item? My next one is now. For a long time,
3: I kind of frowned upon it. I I, I was never embarrassed about it, but it was something I didn't really want to talk about because it didn't seem cool. And in my thirties, and certainly my early forties, you know, as a performer, as an actor, you know, I, I was looking for jobs all the time, and I used to play this down. I, and for a long time, I never denied it because it was always out there. And that was working at a holiday camp. It carried a stigma, which I suppose it still carries to this day, you know, the butler's red coat, the cheesy green, the smile and all that. And how it came about for me, I was an actor. I'd worked with a a professional um, theatre company called the Moonshine Theatre Company, which was a touring theatre company, which I was part of. I started at the age of 14 and carried on, I think, to the age of 16, 17. And even when I was going to school, they had a relationship with my school. They had an understanding. I would go to school, do the register, and then run down to the theatre. The theatre would then ring the school and say, he's arrived here safely. I was doing that from the age of 13. Two. So my school understood. They knew I didn't want to be there. You never get away with that now. But they knew I wanted to be an actor. So I did. And I, and I taught TIE, Theatre and Education. We did schools, we went out into the suburbs, did plays in schools and parks. I did Class Enemy, uh, The Trials of King Arthur, loads of these little plays. Loved it. No, that's, I was getting my equity through that. And then in 1980, I was promised a job. I, I was going to go to the National
0: Youth Theatre. Mm.
3: And then I remember buying the stage newspaper. And as a child, we used to go to Pontins Holiday Camps. And I loved it. I loved it for two weeks of the year. You know, my mum and my dad would forget about everything. We'd save up all year to either go to the Isle of Wight or down to the South Coast, wherever these camps were. And I, and I loved it. I, I loved what these blue coats did. These blue coats were heroes to me. Because back then, to be a blue coat, you had to sing, dance. Uh, you know, there were a lot of actors who were out of work and they would do sketch shows. And, of course, you'd host the bingo. You'd do Donkey Derby, Nobbly Knees. You, know, you certainly won't get away with now. But then they were the staple diet of holiday camps. And I loved it as a child. For me, they were—they did everything. They were the ultimate entertainers. And so I looked, and I should have been at school in 1980. That was going to be my last year at school. But they were going to release me to go and do National Youth Theatre. So I saw this audition come up. Pontin's Blue Coats needed for summer season 1980. Now, bear in mind, you've got to be 18 to be a Blue Coat. Mm. I saw this in February of 1980. I was 15, uh, still at school. So I went and auditioned thinking, no, I just wanted to go along audition, that's all. So I kind of, I, I remember on my way to school, having a bag of clothes, put, getting changed on the bus to Regent Street and putting on a nice, smart pair of trousers, slick my hair back, tried to look a bit older than fifty. And because I was quite tall and I was a little bit older than my age, I thought I'd get away with this. So I went and auditioned at the Pontus head office, which was on the corner of Oxford Street and Regent Street. In the basement, they had a little stage area, blah, blah. I got up, auditioned, cut a long story short, did a great audition, Four weeks later, I get offered the job at Pomsey's to become a sports organiser. Now, bearing in mind, I'd never held a tennis racket in my life, but I was <laughs> going to be a sports organiser. And I, th- I thought, my God, but you've got to be 18. And I would forged my medical certificate then to get the audition. So, because you know, I didn't have a passport. And then you had a paper. Do you remember the paper medical certificate? So yeah. I was born in 64. So I managed to change the four to a two, which looked like I was going to be 18 in March. Anyway, then the National Youth Theatre was ringing up and they were saying, oh, we're not going to be starting until July. I thought, oh, maybe I'll go and do the National Youth Theatre the following year. Or maybe I'll just go to Pondins because this was going to be starting end of April till September. Wow, how much am I going to earn a week? Something like £22 or something. Oh my God. So I spoke to my mum about it. She went, but Shane, you, you, my mum, if you ever met me more, she's a lovely Dublin lady. What about your fucking exams? I said, Mum, don't worry about exams. I'll try and come back for them. <laughs> so I was then, I went to Ponting's. I made, it was a sliding doors moment. Where I went to Ponting's and I was given a blue coat. And you know what? I've still got that blue coat to this day. Obviously, it doesn't fit me. But, my God, it was one of the proudest moments of my life. I start at the end of April. You go for a training weekend. You learn to foxtrot. Uh, you learn how to plug in a microphone. You learn how to, to cool Bing. I knew that to call Bing because I'm working at my dad's club. So I knew yeah. my way around an audience. And from that moment, in 1980, I went to work on a holiday camp. And it was like my whole life changed. I was introduced to a, a whole lot. Bear in mind, they thought I was 18. And I should have been doing my school exams. I didn't do them. And they were asking where I was. My mum said she didn't know where I was. And by then, you know, you, 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 we didn't have a phone then, so we had to go use the phone in my dad's club. And they kind of, the school gave up. They didn't know where I was. I was leaving anyway. And for all intents and purpose, I think they thought I was at the National Youth Theatre following my career as an actor. And there I was calling Donkey Derby, cleaning up Donkey Poo, doing Miss Pontins. <laughs> uh, uh, it's a knockout introducing these one- I mean at the time I met people like Gary Wilmot Jimmy Cricket was just coming through on the circuit all these wonderful comics I'd see perform and then I managed to get a little 10 minute act of my own but I ended up doing the black and white minstrel show in 1980 because it was a show that was still on television and I yeah. remember them giving me boot polish and said we need you to black up and I'm going what? you what? You want me to what? You want-? and I remember just uh, nearly getting fired for going, I don't I didn't understand you want to... Oh, yeah, I'm like, mate, and to this day I said, I will not do this. And I think I am reluctantly, I, I sat on this guy's lap while he was singing, Climb up on my new sunny boy, thinking I'm going to knock you out in a minute, sunshine. Um, but I had the best time, mate. And I ended up doing like three or four seasons. And then sort of making my way uh, as an actor and doing the odd little TV jobs. And then kind of got myself a little... 15 20 minute act and i got a 40 minute stand up and then ended up becoming a, co- a comedian purely by accident because i was wow. out of work as an actor yeah. and then in the 80s that took me to shows like seaside special summertime the les dennis laughter show freddie star working with canon the Boy, and all these artists but all the time i would go and see people like um rick Mail and aid edwards and that's when you started doing your thing yeah and i remember you being part of that great a sketch company, you know, that you guys were doing at the Comedy Store and I wanted so badly to be a part of that but being drawn to variety and the big shows which, you know, even then I'd always say, do I want to go and do a little gig at the Comedy Store where a couple hundred people might see me not knowing that's where the future was or do I go and do Summertime Special or Live from the palladium where 16 million people are watching but we all knew that was slowly coming to an end and it was the guys like you that were coming through so I opted because it's all I knew for your summertime special seaside specials but all the time going nah this is not where I belong this is not where I belong but being a blue coat opened my eyes to the business I've always said now and I was I was always in denial for a long time but I'm first and foremost an entertainer mm. the umbrella is the entertainer underneath that yeah am I an actor I'm a trained actor do I do stand-up yeah do I sing dance do musical theater but first and foremost If you're an actor, a singer, a dancer, a poet, you're an entertainer. You are first and foremost an entertainer. And I've always believed that. And my blue coat that hangs up in my wardrobe, sometimes if I get down, reminds me, that's who you are.
0: I often think, because as a boy, I went to holiday camps all Mm -hmm. the time. We always went to holiday camps. And I love the entertainers. And I would have loved to have been a holiday camp entertainer. But why didn't you? Well, because I, I went down the route that you've avoided, which is that yeah. I went down the route of taking exams and then going to university. And so I got into it through university comedy.
3: But you were part of where Rick Merlin and Aid Edmondson and these guys were coming through, weren't you?
0: Yeah. Yeah. We we, we did the, the comic strip and all sorts of things like that. So we did. Yeah. But it's, it's a funny thing. I, I still hanker after that. I think that I would have loved to have done it. Really? You know, because, uh, yeah, I remember you telling me once about that sensation of being on all the time. And I really like that thing. In a a way, in life, I'm quite happy to do that as well. I don't mind people coming up to me in the street. I like it.
3: Yeah, I've always said, I mean, I'm constantly being asked when I have my picture taken, someone will always say to me, oh, you must get fed up of this. And I don't, and if I'm being really honest, I don't know what they mean. Because I can't remember a time, Mike, when I've never been asked for my picture, because when I went to the holiday camp at fifteen, those that I've been at holiday camps, you know, when you're a blue coat, red coat, green coat, for them people coming away even for a week or two weeks, while they're there, you are their entertainment. So every Friday night, everyone will want a picture taken with you, wherever you are. They want your attention. Oh, they Shane, shame of look. Oh, and have a picture taken. Da, 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 da. And like I think I told you this, I had a chalet at stuff. When I was 16. And if I wanted to get away from it, I'd go back to the chalet. And it was a tiny little room with a bed and a sink. It's all you had. Um, and I would lay in the bed and shut the door and I was away from the business. I was away from the business. And as soon as I stepped out that door, you become public. I've always believed you're public property. And like I said to you, the only difference, you know what, 40 odd years later is I've got a nice and chalet now. <laughs> The day I worry is when I stop being asked for a picture. Yeah. That's what I want. Yeah. But yeah, I, I don't, when people do ask me about, do I ever think about getting bothered about it? I don't I honestly, hand on my heart, I can't remember a time when I've not been asked. So I don't know quite what they mean.
0: No. And and I've seen you do it. Oh, you've been there. Haven't you? I've watched you do it in the middle of Benidorm. You know, we were filming Benidorm yeah. together and we were staying in a hotel and I thought that you would choose to go somewhere quiet. no, Let's go down by the pool. Yeah, and we sat there with every and all day long. People kept coming up and saying, "I'm sorry, Shane. You know, you couldn't just and you were going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. You were grabbing people's phone, phoning people up. You didn't mind at all. I've never seen anybody give themselves so much to the public as you.
3: Really? Well, I, mean, I, I I believe it's because of the general public. You know, we all have a career, whether you're like I say, a singer, a dancer, an actor. Well, I don't. You know. You, who, who are you doing it to? I, 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 it's, it's difficult to explain. I don't know who you're doing it to. Who are you trying to appeal to? There was a time I, I, I always said oh, I want to try and appeal to my peers. I don't care about them anymore. It's, it's the general public. You know when I do when I you know Eastenders, okay, a great big part of my life. Who are we playing to? We're we playing to the general public. So when I step out of that and they want to come up and they want to call me Alfie, I don't mind at all. And they want a picture, of course. Of course you can, I, I owe it to the general, public. I've always believed it, I owe my career and the reason why I've got a nice chalet is because the general public, that's not to say sometimes it ain't a ball ache, <laughs> 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 with a family and I'm having dinner and I can see someone with their camera, just turning their camera around and trying to film it and I've got a bit of broccoli in the corner of my mouth and, then, and I've called it out, I've gone, listen guys, let me finish my dinner and I'll have, have a picture taken with it. and it's fine. There's some famous people I know that step out and they refuse
0: to have a picture taken. And I don't get it. I don't get it. But anyway, that's just me though, mate. Well, the blue coat. We're going to take your precious blue coat and we're going to put it in the time capsule to remind you of those, those happy days. So what's next? We're going to take a short break here for some adverts. Very important things for podcast makers. So bear with us. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Okay, let's get back to Shane Ritchie and find out what else he would like to put into his time capsule.
3: One of the other highlights was when I got the part in Greece, the musical. Uh, that was a real turning point for me. Uh, I did a big show when Sky was first launched. Um, Derek Jameson, he was given a chat show on the early days of Sky. And I was I got asked. Would I come and do the warm-ups? Because I was doing a lot of warm-ups at the time then for Wogan and uh, Catchphrase and Noel's House Party. And I got asked to be the warm-up comic. And it was filmed at the old Windmill Theatre, which became Paramount City. They turned it into a stand-up and it was a little TV stroke theatre. And Derek Jameson, five nights a week, would record the show at six o'clock. And the show would go out that night at ten o'clock. Anyway, I was the warm-up comic. My job was to go out in the streets and try and invite people in because no one knew about Sky then. They certainly weren't going to come and sit and watch in, in a hot theatre and watch a chat show with someone they, A, they didn't know or B, didn't like Derek Jameson. But anyway, after a few months, Annabelle Jones was the co-host at the time and uh, we had a wonderful relationship. Anyway, I think she finally called it a day. And then Derek said, how about, how about we get to shape which you? you'll come and be the co-host for a while till we find someone better. <laughs> <laughs> so I went, And become the co host for a week. And you'll never guess who became the warm up. Who? Rob Bryden became the warm up comic. He'd come down from Wales. I think he just finished university, trying to make his way around the circuit in London. And he became the warm up. So then I became the co host. Now, I knew a lot of the comics in London. I said, why don't we start having a little slot where comics can come and do a little three minutes? So at that point, we managed to get people like Bob Mills. Mickey Hutton, Eddie Izzard, uh, I think Paul Merton come and did a bit. I mean, Paul going, and all these comics that from the London would come on. And then from that, I was on the show for about nine months. And then I started building up my, my career once again in television. I don't how, how we're digressing here from Greece. It will come together, mate, I promise you. <laughs> uh, and then I did a children's show called run the risk. And it was a, a little insert part of going live, and then I ended up doing something called Win, Lose or Draw, which I took over from Danny Baker. This was in '92, and and I just I felt like I was going around in circles. I was just becoming a, another non-runner. I was doing you know the stand-up was all right, not going great. I ended up doing stand-up at Butlins, supporting, funny enough, little and large, and it just, my heart wasn't in it and I was losing faith in television I'm what my children's presenting now. When Lose or Draw was doing great, but it was 9.25. I'd already had a big show on BBC One called Court in the Act, which got 12 million views, but Jim Moyer, who was head of uh, control of BBC said, oh, he's, he sounds too like an so they got rid of him. Points of View did this whole thing about my accent, about how people like me shouldn't have an accent on Prime. Anyway, I parted <laughs> with that, that was in 91, 92. A show that I was doing was getting 12 million viewers, absolutely me. Yeah. Anyway, bang, I soon got over that. Um, and then I'd, I'd loved musical theatre for a long time. And David Ian, who'd become a friend of mine, with him and Paul Nicholas had formed a company. And, and his first project, he said, we've managed to get the rights to Greece. Now that doesn't mean much now because the show's been done to death. But back in 19, end of 92, no one had ever in the, the worldwide Robert Stigwood had never give the film rights away. So they'd managed to do a deal with Robert Stigwood and they said, Oh, we're going to do the movie version of Greece. And I was like, Oh, David, you got to let me be in that. And he went, Oh, what are you talking you're a TV presenter. You, you, get musical, you, don't, you don't do musical theater. I said, no, but I, w- I will learn. I went to pineapple and I learned to dance. When I say I learned to dance, I learned to, have to count, step, step or kick. Not that we're going to do much tap in Greece, but I learned to tap and just jazz on just to get in. I knew what time I ought to do at the audition. Anyway, Arlene Phillips is choreographing this. So I go along to audition. And I knew they were just doing me a favor. David Ian said, oh, listen, get Shane in. Yeah, you'll recognize him. He does children's TV. And they're all the producers like, oh, are we going down that route? Children's TV presenters in a musical? And I'm like, well, hold on, guys. Is this how I'm going to be known now for the rest of my career? Anyway, I auditioned and I lied. I lied to them that I was a trained dancer. And uh, I was a trained singer. <laughs> now, I, it ain't that difficult to sing rock and roll, Mike. You know, if this was Phantom of the Opera or Lemmy's, they may have found me out. <laughs> but this was rock and roll. So I put my hair in a quiff, turned it, and because I, and I, I'd done stand-up, I did the best audition. Now, there was no way I was going to get Danny Zuko because they'd already said Craig McLaughlin. I know you're saying who, but then he was Henry from Neighbours. So what other parts were there? I oh, no, know, He sings Grease Lightning in the, in the movie. So I auditioned. And they went, nah. Well, what would you been, though? No. That was a great audition. And Robert Stigwood, who had no idea who I was, went, mate. And he was a real big, jolly, big, fat Australian. Megalomaniac, multimillionaire who made Saturday Night Fever, used to manage the Bee Gees. He said, there was that young man who just come up and made us laugh. He was a very funny man. He'd be great knicky. And they were going, no, 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 you don't want him. That's shame, you don't want him. He said, no, no, I'm telling you. It'd be a wonderful Kinnicky. Anyway, mate, I went from earning a lot of money from doing stand up and doing TV shows, and I've become part of the also ran. So I, I got the job as Kinnicky, which was fantastic. But I think I was, I mean, it was a lot of money still back then. I think it was about £680 a week, but I'd gone from earning thousands. And I turned my back on a TV series for the BBC. I was supposed to do a tour, a stand up tour, turn my back, because I knew the right decision would be a change of direction to go into musical theatre. So I was there for about 10 months. While I was doing that, they let me out to do Win, Lose, or Draw. And I did Win, Lose, which became a big success. Yeah, I was at 9.25, five days a week. Now, bear in mind, Craig wasn't on television. And then I did a show called Lucky Numbers, which was a bingo show. Now, the, the producers thought, hold on a second. We're going to let Shane out here because we know this could help the box office. Now, Lucky Numbers went out and became the biggest show on television. Friday nights. I think 7 o'clock, where people the first interactive game show on television where people would buy, I think it was The Sun or The Daily Mirror, you could play along at home while I was doing this game show. Now, all of a sudden, people are coming to see me. And, oh, is, is that bloke who does, is he still in the musical? Chris, bear in mind, my name wasn't outside the theatre. So the box office started now, but Craig McLaughlin was bored now. He'd done 10 months. He was supposed to do a year, but he was offered another job in Australia and they let him out to do it. So he started to audition for Greece. Okay? They brought in some other Australian actors. I think at one point, Jason Donovan was about to was about to come out of Joseph. He was going to audition. I think Philip Schofield. all oh, these big stars. Bear in mind, my career on TV was on the rise. Win, Lose, or Draw was on. Then I got the Dazzad, which kind of nearly killed it. But <laughs> what what happened was between, even when I wasn't on Lucky Numbers, in the ad break, was me. So in 94, I was on Telly constantly all the time bang 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 they asked me to audition I said no I said I'll tell you what I'll do take Craig McLaughlin off for the weekend give him a paid holiday let me go and do a Friday night and two shows matinee and they went oh we're not sure I went, well that's the only one to audition so they said okay now I had a great in with I think the Sun newspaper at the time or the mirror because they were sponsoring the show they run a piece in the newspaper saying Would you like to go and see Shane Ritchie live in Greece? The music. Well, the box office mate went through the roof. (laughs) I went on for them three shows and it was incredible from the moment I walked on stage. It was like a rock concert. There were screams about mate, I was still in my thirties. I had a six pack and a dyed black hair and I had a quiff. Anything I did to look like Elvis or John Travolta, I did and it worked. So then they came back and they offered me the job. And I said, no. <laughs> and, and my manager said, he will do it, but we want this in the contract. We want, And I won't go into detail, mate, but suffice to say, I bought the big house and I've still got my Danny Zuko jacket signed by John Travolta and Olivia Newton-Johns. Wow. B, that was a game changer. It was, I mean, it, it opened a lot of doors. And I, sadly, it ended my marriage. But as far as putting me back on the map, and for a while, I had my Saturday night show. I was Danny Zuko and Greece so doing the, the soap powder. Right? I used to do a joke. A amount of money they paid pay me to uh, wash that stuff. I'd have sniffed the shit. But anyway, that was a gag I used
0: to do. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> See, what I think is brilliant about that story is that you knew... From your going right back to those days of being a holiday camp entertainer, that you knew that if they let you get in front of an audience, you'd get it.
3: Yeah, that was all that's all. all is about, mate. You put me, in, mate, I've lost, like most actors, I've gone into a room and I remember auditioning for Full Metal Jacket, Stanley Kubrick, and getting all the way down to one of the. I think it was about four or five leads playing a young GI and they wanted to shave my hair. And I went, Nope, that's it. Forget it. And I walked <laughs> out. But I mean, in, in, in all auditions I've done, I, I, I don't do great in auditions. I really don't. Uh, but no, that was one prime example of said, yeah, I'll audition, but let me get in front of 2000 people. And it worked in my favor because I knew I know how to work an audience. Yeah. I, I, you know, that comes from working on holiday camps. Yeah.
0: So you've got a, a house full of memorabilia. I mean, that jacket to you is precious, but also how much will people pay for that jacket?
3: And it was such a thrill meeting. And when Olivia and john comes to see the show, oh God, we were so excited. But, you know, Greece has now become, it tours every year uh, and it does well, but people don't realise how big it was when it opened in 93. We was on top of the pops. It, it was making news worldwide. Up until that point,
0: you could only do the original musical of Greece.
3: You never had songs like uh, "Greece is the Word. Uh, it never had songs like You're the One That I Want. It didn't have Sandy. It didn't have Hopelessly Devoted to You. All the songs that were in the charts, mm. they weren't in the stage show. And it wasn't until Robert Stigwood gave it to him and said, go on, off you go, go and do it.
0: Fantastic. Well, all right, we're going to put that fabulous Danny Zuko jacket into the time capsule. So what's next?
3: What's, <clears throat> uh, on my wall, I remember um, back in when did I start? Two thousand and two. Uh, my manager had retired. Uh, I just met Christy. I had no money. One of my sons was living with me. I just lost three quarters of a million in an investment in a movie which I was producing with Jolie Richardson. I had nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing, and had to borrow the money up front just to pay bills. And then I changed management, and this guy I'm with now said to me, "You know what? Have you ever thought about EastEnders? Of course, every actor, you know, wanted to be in a big show. Uh, like he said, there's Corey Emmerdale in their big shows. And I just thought, oh, we've got another manager full of BS. And he says, listen, I'll tell you what. He said, I can only phone uh, Let me see what I can do. Meanwhile, the Bill were interested in me playing a small part in a spin-off called Burnside. Uh, the Dazad was still dragging me down. When I, I turn up sometimes at auditions and people go, oh, there's that Pratt who does the Dazad." And I'd hear them on the other side of the door and I'd go and I'd just end up leaving. Um, anyway, so my manager said, listen, I, I can't promise you these standards, but I know them well enough that they'll audition. You. Oh, okay, so I'll go and do it. And I turned up and a lovely lady called Julia Cramps, who's since become a good friend of mine, she's casting director there. And there was a lady at the time called Louise Berridge and Tony Jordan who was one of the, the script editor, the main writers there, who created the Slaters, the Mitchells, the big story line, He was the one who wrote, who shot Phil. He was there from the beginning, blah, blah, blah. So I went along and uh, I did all right. did all right. And uh, funny enough, I went along to audition for a part, for a fireman who it was, it was a three month contract. They wanted a fireman, cheeky cockney, six foot, blue eyes, blah, blah. I went along and I, and I remember leaving Mike, walking along thinking, I've got this. I, and I've got this. I, I, I've done the audition in the Queen Vic. Letitia's the there, all these actors I know. Uh, <laughs> and I've gone, Shane, good to see you. Oh, mate, you've got this. This is yours. They love you. By the time I got to the main gate, Elstree, my phone got, my manager went, nah, they didn't like you. I went, oh, screw it. He said, but the bill are interested. And I went, really? They went, yeah. He said, do you want to audition? So I'm going have a meeting about it. I was getting so down about doing television you now. I just felt like it was, my manager was just sending me along just to save face. Meanwhile, EastEnders got back in touch and said, listen, we're thinking of putting this new family together. We don't know much about them yet, but we'd love Shane to come back and do some improv. So I'm in a room with all these actors. So we start doing this improv and they say to me, "Uh, Shane, we want you to play this guy who's got a young brother and he looks after him and maybe the nan as well. Okay, so I'm doing some improv, looking, oh, I think this is going well. So they keep me behind and they bring in some other young actors to play my brother and they're still keeping me behind. Then they bring in some more elderly ladies to play my grand, And this goes over, over a period of weeks. does, And I'm thinking, oh, am I there just to help the casting, which we've done before as actors. And while I'm sitting there, Tony Jordan, he's sitting there in his cowboy boots, Larry's shirt, jeans and a big buckle, and a long leather coat and I'm going oh I like that look Tony he said oh thanks mate now don't forget he went on to write life on Mars and ashes to ashes and death in paradise so this guy knows what he's talking about anyway I go on holiday got no money we go and stay uh, we rent this little apartment me Christy and a mum and dad and a sister and I think it was New York or something like that we get cheap bucket flight uh, I've got no work the phone goes and I've actually got this on video Mike because My wife was filming me at the time and I was running around the swimming pool doing silly dives. The phone goes and she goes, oh, it's Phil, your manager. So I pick up the phone and he goes, right, I want you to listen and you don't talk because no one can know this. And she's still filming me and I'm listening and Christy's my missus, going, is everything okay? And I'm going, yeah, it's fine. I'm just listening. And he tells me down the phone, his want you to come in. They've offered you a three-year contract. They want you to start filming in September you won't be on screen till November and you can't tell anybody bear in mind I can't say anything (laughs) I know Christy's filming me and Christy's worried because I start crying Uh. and she goes what I said it's all right darling and Phil says they've got this character they want to call Alfie now I'm thinking what this is pathetic and I anyway I managed to walk away from Christy so I knew I could have a conversation so i go somewhere I went Phil What's Alfie? Alfie, who they went Alfie Moon? I went, Oh, well, that's just stupid. That's just a <laughs> pathetic comedy name. Who's got, uh, he said? No, they, Tony Jordan's come up with this idea that he wants to recreate the Trotters because Tony Jordan was a big fan of John Sullivan and they were mates. Tony always wanted to create his very own Trotter family within EastEnders. So we've got Alfie, Spencer, of course, was Rodney, and instead of Grandad, we've got Nana Moon. And the first episode we're going to film in September is where Alfie turns up at the square. The whole episode is going to be about you, how you infiltrate the Queen Vic, lie to Peggy, and at the end of half hour Ep, Alfie Moon, by blagging, has taken over the Queen Vic. But here's the thing, Mike. I couldn't tell anybody. Nobody. No. All summer, people are saying, Shane, what are you up to? Nothing. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're not working, Shane. I am doing nothing. No, it's, I'm uh, knowing I'm about, to, I've just signed a three year deal now. So obviously I start filming in September. The papers find out Shane Richie has just signed a deal with these If there's ever a reason we should never pay our TV license, it's now. Please help me in boycotting Shane Richie going to EastEnders. I still have that clipping wow. in my office. But I understood it though, Mike, because if you're on the outside, look, it's the guy that does the Daz November 21st, my first episode of Alfie Moon went out. Oh my God. My life for the next three years would never be the same. No. It was incredible. That, that's when the show was pulling in 12, 14, 16 million viewers. Mm. Uh, the following year, Christmas, that episode where, you know, Nana Moon dies in my arms, I when Cat and Alfie, I mean, it took a whole year for Cat and Alfie to kiss. Every week, people would tune in. You know, there were, there were shirts made called Alfie Moon shirts, yeah. which were flowery shirts. My, you know, in 2003, I went to number one in the charts with the Children Need song. I went to number one in the best-selling uh, Times, uh, my autobiography. I think we I won a couple of baftas. You know, I cleaned up at the soapboards. Here was this bloke. Bad skin, divorced, over 40, with bad skin, women, as male. And I would sit there and go, oh, my God. And, and I won Best Newcomer, Mike. Best Newcomer. <laughs> <laughs> but nearly 30 years in, uh, But I kept that piece of paper that, that, you know, it amounts to nothing.
0: See, what that, what that critic clearly didn't understand is that you knew yeah. these people.
3: Yeah, I knew who Alfie Moon was. Yeah. I know, I, you know, my dad ran clubs. I, I knew landlords. I knew pub landlords. I, You know, I, you know I, I sung in these clubs. I cleaned up in them from the age of like nine to 12, cleaning dirty tables. I knew, I knew who EastEnders'
0: audience were. So that piece of paper. <laughs> that piece of paper was your part, yeah. God, yeah. yeah. Well, Shane, th- we've done five things. That's it. Have we? We have. I can't believe it. You have put in. Galen. Yeah. You've got the wagon on your front lawn. Yeah. You've got your blue coat. Yeah. Then you've got your um, grease jacket signed. Yeah. And now you've got the little piece of paper from EastEnders. That's the five items for your time capsule. Now, I know I'm going to have to come back to you in about a year's time and do another five.
3: Mate, don't leave it so long. We can do it next week.
0: (laughs) You have been the easiest person to do this show with. I've just launched you off and off you went. And that's why I pursued you so so strongly, because I knew you'd be like this. Oh, thank you. I love talking to you, Shane. I really love it. I love your passion and I love your, your honesty about these things.
3: Oh, bless you. That's really nice. Thanks, Mike.
0: You have been listening to My Time Capsule, with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and the force of nature that is Shane Ritchie. I hope you had as much fun as I did. If you'd like to hear more episodes, there are plenty available if you subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. For more information, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. This has been a cast-off production produced by John Fenton-Stevens, with the music provided by Pass the Peas Music. Now, I know I say all that at the end of every episode, so I'm sorry for repeating myself. It's for any first-time listeners, and to keep the rest of you in suspense as we wait to discover if there are any adverts after the programme is finished. Yeah, did you know that they play adverts after the podcast is over? Sometimes. I mean, not always, but, you know, it's a tense moment. Particularly if you are the maker of the podcast and rely on the ads... Anyway, I won't delay any longer. Good luck, everyone. Right, here goes. Anything your end? No? Oh. Oh, well, fuck it, I'll get a proper job. Bye. How
1: up?